John chapter 11. I want to read for you this morning verses 45 through 57. And remember what's happened. Jesus has just raised up Lazarus from the dead. It has been witnessed by many people that are there. And uh, here now we see the response to that. Beginning in verse 45, this is God's inspired and unerring and life-giving word. Let's give it our full attention. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, we ask your help to hear and to understand your word that we might receive it with faith and with joy. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply it in powerful ways to our hearts. And this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. So what's going on here? A man has been raised from the dead. Not a man who was merely stunned or had lost consciousness and now has been revived, but a man whose body had already begun to decay has now been raised whole from the grave. Not many weeks before that event, a man who had been blind from birth had, at the hands of Jesus, received his sight. And these, as everyone knew, were just the most recent events, extraordinary outpourings of power at the hands of Jesus. Outpourings of power meant as signs to those who observed them to bolster the authority of the words of Jesus, to point to the fact that he was indeed God in the flesh, not just a prophet, not just a man sent from God, but God in the flesh. The miracles the Lord performed made the sick well, restored soundness and purity to the body of lepers, restoring them back into society. The, the miracles of Jesus caused the restoration of hearing for the deaf, sight to the blind, 
speech to the speechless. He fed a multitude of thousands of hungry people and he returned dead to their grieving families. Who could possibly resent all of this supernatural, powerful kindness? Who could, who could come against or oppose these supernaturally powerful good deeds? Who could feel anything but gratitude and pleasure and wonder and happiness at so many who had suffered so much now being released from their suffering at the mighty hands of Christ? And yet, we see right here the sinful complexity of the human heart and the stubborn resilience of unbelief. Now, John begins by pointing out what seems to be the most obvious response to the raising of a dead man. Those who saw and believed. You see it there in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, now that's a reference, as we've seen before, to those men and women who had come from Jerusalem to the village of Bethany to grieve with Mary and Martha at the loss of their brother. Remember, everybody here is, is Jewish. John is using that term as a reference to identify those who had come here from Jerusalem. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did, and they believed in him. Now, before we explore these words a little deeper, I just want to acknowledge that those who believed that day did not come to that place of believing because of any personal superiority over those who did not believe. You who believe today, you believe in Jesus not because you are in any way spiritually, morally, emotionally, intellectually more superior to those who do not believe. The only reason, the only ultimate explanation for your belief, for my belief, the only ultimate explanation that makes any sense is the grace of God. If it weren't for the grace of God, I'd still be dead in my sins. You would still be dead in your sins. If it weren't for the grace of God chasing me down and conquering my stubborn will and causing me to see, then I would be just as unbelieving as the hard-hearted unbelievers that are described here at the tomb of Lazarus. Make no mistake, if you believe at all, it is because of the grace of God. Who here can take credit for the fact that the offensive stumbling block of the gospel became the beautiful, life-giving good news for you? Who can take credit for the fact that the offensive odor of the gospel became a fragrance of life for you? It is only by the grace of God that we believe. Now, if you look, if you have, I'm preaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And John writes uh, that many there who had seen the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, quote, believed in him. Now that believed in him can also be translated believed on him or believed into him. It's John's favorite way to describe faith in Jesus. That when it comes to Jesus, mere intellectual assent to particular facts while necessary, is nothing particularly special. 
So John uses a term meant to capture the nature, the full nature of saving faith. And so he says, believe in or believe on or believe into him. It is a faith which, while certainly affirming the facts, goes far deeper than that. It's a faith, it's a faith which fully trusts. And so the language believes in, believes on, believes into great New Testament scholar Leon Morris calls it the moral element of personal trust. This is the sort of faith which is called for from the gospel. We don't just we don't hear the gospel and simply respond by saying, well, that's an interesting set of facts. I, I think perhaps on an intellectual level, I accept those facts. Saving faith does far more than that. Now, Christianity is a faith. It is a body of belief. That means it's filled with content. Content meant to, to, to be taught and preached. Content meant to, be, to be believed and repeated and proclaimed and passed on to the next generation. Theological liberalism, which raises its head in every generation, always attacks that basic fact. Claiming that Christianity is about having a shared set of values regardless of any beliefs or doctrinal commitments, which... which really aren't that important to begin with. In the 19th century, the Christian convert G.K. Chesterton wrote this, quote, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty, he wrote, has settled on the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. And if it was true in the 19th century, it is doubly true today. The biblical idea of believing on, believing into, captures both the content of the faith as well as the moral dimension of the faith. Faith is meaningless apart from the truth that is made clear in Scripture. But faith is dead if it remains a strictly intellectual matter, divorced from the virtues that are taught in God's Word. The faith that God gives, the faith which, which wells up in us by God's grace, embraces the truth as a matter of fact, but it also embraces the author of that truth as Savior and Lord. It is a faith which is alive. It grows and it bears fruit. It yields love for God and love for our neighbor. That's the faith that God supplies to us by his grace. That's the faith that saves. Now look at verse 46, because now we have a conflict. But, John writes, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Isn't that remarkable? They had seen with their own eyes a man who had been in the tomb long enough that, yea, verily, he stinketh. And it's to that man that Jesus said the words, Lazarus, come out. And he came out of the tomb. And their thought is, uh, this is a problem. We better go tell the bad guys. This is not the first time that one of Jesus' miracles has been the occasion of division. There were always those waiting to pounce on Jesus, so he 
uh, heals a man born blind or he raises up a man who'd never walked before. And sure enough, the critics are there to say, well, that was, this was the wrong day for him to heal a blind man. Or this was the wrong way for him to grant legs to the legless. I mean, you know, there, there were always those who failed to see the remarkable thing that Jesus had just done with all of its wonderful moral implications and instead took the position as an adversary. Some see the miracle here at the, the tomb of Lazarus and they believe, while others witnessing the same thing remain unbelieving, even hostile in their attitude toward Jesus. And we would like to flatter ourselves and say, well, clearly if I was there, I'd believe if I saw a dead man raised. Not, not so fast. First of all, think about the division. You have one group over here and one group over here all of a sudden. Have you noticed that as Jesus walked through life, that was happening all the time around him. Division. Jesus became a line of demarcation between people wherever he went, it seems. In fact, it was happening from the moment of his birth that men and women from every age have divided up over him. Now, this is not because Jesus is doing something wrong. Jesus causes division, not because there's something wrong in him, but because we are sinners. And any time you put someone or something that is holy and sacred and good and just and pure in the midst of sinners, there's going to be division. There's going to be ripple effects. There's going to be a concussion. So having just seen Jesus raise up a dead man to life, these folks' first thought was, now we've got him, now let's go report him. John means for us to understand that those who went to inform the Pharisees didn't do so out of evangelistic zeal. As one commentator puts it, quote, they were bearing the latest news to the enemy. Shocking, isn't it? How can you not believe after seeing such a miracle? Well, let's keep following along where John takes us. You see there in verse 47, having received the news that Jesus now has miraculously raised a man from the dead. The Pharisees and the chief priests gathered together with the rest of the ruling council, the, the religious ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. It was the body of religious leadership among the Jews, made up of several, first of all, the two main religious parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then the chief priests. And they gather together, and you, you see what they say in verse 47, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now you would think that the next statement would be, isn't this great? But they ask, what are we to do? Well, I have a suggestion. Believe. How about that? Believe. But in their minds, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, just the latest miracle constituted a crisis. And so see as they, as they go on in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, you got to love these guys. Do you see what they say? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? And of course, that's the problem. That's the crisis. Because you see how what they see the dots they connect here? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him and 
the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And there it is. You see what they're concerned about. The place is almost certainly that they have in mind the temple. This had happened before. Remember, they're on their second temple. The first temple had been destroyed, and the temple they had now was the second temple. They'd known what it was like to have their temple desecrated by the Romans, and they don't want this to happen again. They'll take it away. And interestingly enough, some 35 years or so after this, in A.D. 70, that's exactly what was going to happen. Titus Vespasian, having been fed up with the Jewish nation, sends troops into Jerusalem, he burns Jerusalem and desecrates and destroys the temple. Now they're terrified of this happening. They want to avoid it. They want to avoid any damage that would come to the temple. They want to avoid any further damage that would come to the nation. You see, Jesus is Lord and he tends to upset people, parties, and nations. Now let's let's see if we can... So this isn't in the notes. Let's just see where we go. Beloved, if you think that Jesus could show up today in our nation and things not in our nation get upset, then you don't know what Jesus is like. If you think Jesus would show up in our nation and go, finally, a Christian nation, no. Um, I love the country that the Lord, by His grace, caused me to be born in. I'm so grateful for the United States. It's good, and it honors God to be grateful for the place where He caused you to be born and lived. That's a good thing. You can honor the Lord by loving the place that He's given you in the world. Okay? Those who say that any expression of patriotism is idolatry, they're wrong. It can easily turn into idolatry, though. Love your country. Love the place. Love the people that God has caused you to be among and to live among. Be thankful for it. But I'm going to tell you something. If you think that Jesus doesn't have something to say to us that would upset us here, then you don't know much about Jesus. And just as these Pharisees and religious rulers were terrified that Jesus might upset the nation, we could use with a dose of that sobriety ourselves. And while I'm speculating here apart from the notes, let me just add this. I'm just spitballing here. Maybe maybe close to 80 million abortions takes us out of the running for a Christian nation. Okay, see, all of that was free. Something to think about. Okay, so what are they concerned about? Their concern was that Jesus would foment a popular revolt against the Roman authorities who at that time governed Judah and Jerusalem. This had happened before, after all. Phony messiahs had led violent militaristic uprising against the Romans, and of course the inevitable always followed, Roman beat them up afterwards. They crushed those rebellions. And the consequences were severe in Judah and in the city of Jerusalem. And they don't want that happening again. 
And even though they're under Roman rule and occupation, the religious authorities, the Jewish ruling council, had found their sweet spot. They had their position, they had their respect, they had all of the accoutrements that went along with that. They were free to worship pretty much as they liked, to teach pretty much what they liked. The temple was left intact. But if Jesus kept gathering followers, it could threaten all of that nice equilibrium. It could threaten their status. It could threaten their power. Notice their emphasis on self-interest. We'll lose our place. Or as Caiaphas is going to say, it's best for you if this one man dies. And don't miss the significance of the fact that Jesus' enemies here, and all along the way, freely acknowledged the facts of his miracles. And it wasn't because they just thought miracles were just popping up everywhere. They didn't. They saw them as miracles. In fact, at first they tried to deny them. But Jesus was such a frequent worker of miracles that were attested over and over again by large crowds, even themselves, they had to eventually acknowledge that he worked miracles. So they went from, that's not a miracle, to, well, he does it by the power of Satan. They all acknowledged that he gave sight to the blind, that he healed the sick, and in this case, he even raised the dead. But rather than being moved to believe, these men find in Jesus' miracles further motivation to kill him. And we flatter ourselves in thinking that if we witnessed Jesus perform a miracle, then that's all we would need to believe. But that fails to take into account the fact that we are not just brains on a stick. We are thinking people, and that's good. Some of us think more than others. But we are also feeling creatures, yes. I am. I have a feeling every once in a while. And to make it really complicated, we are sinners who have compromised hearts. And so our motives, our prejudices, our insecurities, our lusts, all of that plays a factor in the way that we think and in the way that we feel and in what we love and in what we seek and in what we treasure. These men envied Jesus for his popularity among the people and they hated him for it. They envied his power. They even tragically um, hated him for his goodness. They hated the fact that the people had a growing enthusiasm for him. It made them, in comparison, much smaller. And they couldn't stand for the people's loyalty to be taken from them and given to another. And it's all made much worse by the fact that Jesus publicly charged them with not understanding the Scriptures, with teaching falsehood, and with being hypocrites. How dare you accuse us? So in short, they are men who will not believe even if a man is raised from the dead. Unbelief is a stubborn thing. It requires a lot of effort to refuse to believe in God. Because we are literally drenched in the evidence of God every single day. So much so that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that everyone knows God. Not in a saving way, but everyone knows that God is. We stand before a, a great piece of architecture. Or Mount Rushmore. 
And what would we think about the person who stood before Mount Rushmore and said, look at what the wind and the sand and the rain has done all these years. It's remarkable. We'd laugh that person out of the scene. And yet, we can behold a human eye or the balance that is in the cosmos or, or, or think about the law of gravity or thermodynamics or, or, the, or the irreducible complexity of a, of a human cell, and we can say, accident, random, chance. We can think about the beauty of the Brandenburg concertos and listen to that and say, isn't that amazing what chance can ultimately produce? No, we know that God is. And not only has God written it on creation, but Paul also tells us in Romans 2 that he's written it on the conscience. So the unbeliever has to work doubly hard. The unbeliever has to not only deny what he or she sees in creation, the unbeliever also has to work extra hard to suppress the knowledge that God has placed on their own heart. Every person you know, the fiercest unbeliever you know, has a God-haunted conscience. Every unbeliever you know longs for there to be an objective standard for justice. Every unbeliever you know longs for there to be some sort of release from the burden of their own sin that they are working hard to deny. Every unbeliever you know is making efforts every day to fill the emptiness that they can't seem to satisfy. It's hard. It's hard to not believe. But people achieve it because unbelief is a stubborn, stubborn thing. And here's the key to understanding it, I think. That men and women do not simply behave in ways that displease God but they love those ways. We don't commit sins reluctantly against our will. We love sin. And the reason an unbeliever will not surrender himself or herself to God is because they love themselves and they do not want to give up the lordship over their own lives. You see, to the repentant sinner, to use Jesus' words, to the person who is poor in spirit, when they find out that Jesus is going to change them, they say, oh, finally, Jesus is going to change me. To the unbeliever, stubbornly clinging to their unbelief, they say, oh, no, you don't. I don't want Jesus because I don't want to change. You see, love is a powerful force. The Bible says that the godless are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Or in the last chapter of the Bible, lovers of falsehood. Why do people cling to falsehood? Because they love falsehood. Why do people choose the pleasure that burns their lives down? Because they love the pleasure. Love is a powerful thing. And when it's placed in service to the self, in service to one's own comfort, lusts, 
prejudices, anger, whatever, it is powerful enough to blind the eye of the clearest sight and to deafen the ear to the loudest thunder. Even the kindest of unbelievers have the same problem. They love being their own God. Some of the most decent people we know, people that we would love to have for neighbors, by any human standard they're decent, but they hate God. Oh no, they don't hate God. No, they hate God. Because what they love is to be, at the end of the day, what they love to be and what they demand to be is their own God. Consider the words of the Harvard genetics professor Robert Lewinton. Now, Robert Lewinton was a committed atheist and uh, prolific writer. And listen to this, excerpted from an article that he wrote for the New York Review of Books. Lewinton writes, We, that is his fellow materialists, his fellow atheists, we take the side of science. You know, they always pit science against God, right? Which is a false dichotomy. I, don't, don't try to join bad science with God, but you know what I mean. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. In spite of its failure to fulfill many of its promises. In spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated theories. Because we have a prior commitment a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation for the natural world, but on the contrary, it is that we are forced by our pre-commitment to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a, a, a divine foot in the door. Remarkable honesty, remarkable candor at that point. That's why Huxley explained in the 19th century about his own atheism and the atheism of his fellow intellectuals. He said, we choose atheism because it helps us to be free to live according to our own liberties. No matter how many fossils are missing from the record, no matter how many objections have been raised to the theory of natural selection, he will not yield. Make no mistake, Lewinton is a very bright man, just as were the men who made up the Jewish ruling council who were plotting against Jesus. These were intelligent men, elites with elite educations. Had they stood up before the people to justify their decision to kill Jesus, many, if not most of the people, would have been impressed with how seriously they had thought the situation through. How deeply they felt the weight of this task and how carefully they considered their theological and political arguments. How responsible they were taking their obligations to the nation. And it would not have occurred to virtually any of them to ask the pressing question, right, but what about Lazarus? And in fact, as we'll see in chapter 12, 
the religious authorities decided that Lazarus ought to be killed also. Because you can't have evidence running around. But that even would have made sense to the people, most of them. Just a, a logical extension of the decision to kill Jesus, which was going to be good for the nation. And even if some of them felt a pang of conscience or a rising doubt, they would have suppressed it for fear of something that terrified them. Fear of being thought strange. Or disloyal. Or fear of losing their place. And I would suggest to you that it is love that explains it. Love for self, love for status, love for acceptance, love for pleasure, love for gain. And that's how you see and not believe. Well, look at verse 49. One of them, one of the members of the ruling council, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Makes you immediately think, I think I'd really like this guy. Caiaphas served as high priest from about A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. He's in the secular historical record. He served as high priest for years during the reign of uh, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And they had a rather peaceful coexistence for most of that time. And listening to all this hand-wringing on the part of other members of the council really brings his blood to a boil and he sharply rebukes them. You know nothing at all. In other words... All of your inaction in these past months or the past year, I mean, you've been talking about killing Jesus, you've been talking about arresting him, you've been talking about silencing him, but he's still out there doing this stuff. So, he goes on, and this is extraordinary. Do you see, verse 50? Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Whoa, if he only knew what he was saying. And of course he had no idea. He thinks he knows what he's talking about because after all he's talking about politics. He's talking about national security and identity. But his words actually reveal that God's purposes are overruling any plans that Caiaphas and the others have designed. In fact, in the next verses, John characterizes his statement as a word of prophecy. Caiaphas holds the office, the sacred office of high priest. And God has put those words on his lips, and Caiaphas has no idea. And what Caiaphas spoke about, in that moment, he declared the mission of Jesus to a bunch of his fellow unbelievers, and he had no idea. Because what he couldn't see is that his plans were wicked. What he couldn't see is that his wicked plans were under the sovereign rule of God who would use those wicked plans to bring about a mighty salvation. The Apostle Peter proclaimed this. The Apostle Peter proclaimed after Pentecost, this Jesus, as he's pointing to the men of Jerusalem, this Jesus who you delivered over to be killed was delivered up 
by the predetermined plan of God. You did your worst, and God overruled it all and did his best. You meant what was evil, God meant what was good. You intended death, God brought about the salvation of a multitude. The death of Jesus would indeed be in our place. He would indeed give his life, as it were, for the nation. But more than that, John points out that it would be for those who have been scattered all abroad. Again, referencing Peter at Pentecost, as he was preaching to the gathered multitude, what did he preach? He preached the covenant of grace. God's promise, his everlasting covenant of grace made to Abraham. And he said, this promise is for you and for your children and for all of those whom the Lord God will bring to himself. All of those far off. Well, guess what? That's who we are. Every person that is gathered on this hill today, every person that is gathered in every Christian church all over the world today are a part of those who had been scattered abroad because of sin, but have now been brought near by the grace of Jesus Christ. We, we are the promise kept by his substitutionary death. Jesus would gather together a vast nation spanning time and geography and national boundaries and ethnicity. And so it is no small detail when in verse 55, John points out that this is happening just as the feast of Passover is about to begin. Now, we've just gotten through the first half of John. And we've been in it for like 18 years. Okay? And we've just gotten through the first 11 chapters. We have a whole other half of the Gospel of John to go. And that entire half of the Gospel of John covers one week. One week. Which again goes to show us the priorities of the Holy Spirit as He inspires this Word. The whole point is the dying and rising of Christ. The message of which, the announcement of which, is the power of God unto salvation. As we trace the mission of Jesus in John's Gospel, we see over and over that it unfolds in harmony with these various sacred days on the Jewish calendar. It, it's, 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 it's a way that Jesus shows Himself to be the fulfillment of all that God had promised within the ceremonies and celebrations of the Jewish people. Jesus has now come and fulfilled it all. Most supremely, the Passover. The Passover was the annual remembrance and celebration of God's gracious deliverance of His people out of captivity in Egypt. It became, at that point on, the highest example, the synchronon of God's gracious salvation. And it would remain so until Jesus Himself died on the cross. And at that moment, Jesus who was a pious Jew, was certainly going to be in Jerusalem for Passover. And he would be there ultimately to allow the hands of sinful, wicked men to be laid upon him. For these created beings to lay their hands on the body of our Creator, as it were, and nail him to a cross. 
And in that moment, we see ultimately that Passover is not a day on the calendar. Passover is a person. Jesus is the Passover. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one whose blood was shed and all who find themselves under, as it were, the blood of the Lamb are saved. They are shielded. They are covered over so that the wrath of God's holy justice will pass over rather than fall upon them. This is the moral genius of God at work in the Gospel. That real justice is done. That God is no sentimental, heavenly Santa Claus who says, well, let's just forget about all that sin and rebellion stuff because I don't really care about holiness all that much anyway. No. The moral genius of the gospel, the divine genius of the gospel is this, that real justice is done without for a moment sacrificing God's unimaginable store of mercy. Jesus is our Passover lamb who dies in place of the guilty. He will shoulder the wrath of divine judgment that every sinner who believes will be covered over by mercy. He will bring about the great and final exodus of his people out of the greater and deeper slavery to sin. Well, from this point on, Jesus' ministry changes in many respects. The time for his miraculous signs is now past. So too with regard to his public preaching. Except for one statement, a public call to believe that he will make during Passover, Jesus no longer does any more public preaching and teaching. Following this, the next public appearance by Jesus will be as a prisoner, as God's perfect and ultimate sacrifice. Now, listen. I just take it as a given that on any Sunday morning, across our three services in two languages, not everyone with us is a believer. I just take that as a given. And I want you to know if you're not a believer, first of all, we're not mad at you for not being a believer, okay? We're not mad at you, and we're not going to mock you. But I want you to know something. That no matter how strong your unbelief is, it will not and it cannot change reality. In other words, you not believing in God doesn't make God disappear. You rejecting Jesus doesn't make him go away. You not believing that you're a sinner doesn't take away your guilt of being a sinner. Your unbelief doesn't alter reality at all. We've seen statistics about those who go off to university and stop believing. And certainly I think there are some who went to college believing, but they proved to have a very, very thin faith because by their second class in their intro to philosophy class, they've suddenly drop-kicked the faith. Or, or in the face of a rainbow sign or being told love is love, they decide they can't be Christians anymore. 
because they were never given a robust faith. It's not because they suddenly stopped believing in college. It's because really for all practical intents and purposes, they stopped believing in high school or junior high even. But it's not until university that they finally say, I'm an unbeliever. I'm too smart for this stuff. I'm too moral for this Christianity stuff. I'm too good for it. And because so often our churches do not give Christians a robust faith, we don't don't teach them well. The intellectual weightiness of the Scripture's claims, the internal agreements of it. We we, we don't teach them not only the, the intellectual satisfying nature of biblical Christianity, but we, we don't teach them well the, the existential comfort of the gospel as well. So, so not only is there good and proper evidence that God is, there's good and proper evidence that Jesus rose, but also who can satisfy the soul like Jesus? Both of those things. Now, thank God, and I'm not flattering anybody here trust me thank god for uh, our youth pastor and our youth workers because they're doing this very thing for our students and we're seeing the fruit of it because if we don't do what they're doing now they'll be among the people who halfway through their freshman semester say i don't believe But I say all that again to say your unbelief does not change a thing. You do not alter reality by not believing. Being mad at God and saying, I don't believe in him because you're mad at God will not make him go away and it will not make you unaccountable to him. Because Jesus is king. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all of those who believe in Him. And He is also the judge who will return one day to judge the living and the dead. And in that moment, He will take unto Himself into His blessed presence every sinner who in this life cried out to Him, looked to Him, believed into Him, But those who remained in their sin, those who remained in their beloved, preferred unbelief, will face the king's judgment. And no matter what lengths the unbeliever goes to in order to convince himself that the sin of unbelief is justified, no matter what he does to convince himself for that, no excuses on that day will be accepted. You will not be able to say, God, you didn't give me enough evidence. You won't be able to say it. You won't be able to say, if I'd only seen a dead man raised. No. King Jesus will have the final word. But I want, you to, tell, I, I want to tell you something. As long as it is day, if you like, there is still time. Every moment that the return of Jesus is delayed is a moment of mercy for you. 
Because His gracious promise remains the same. King Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, is also the Savior who said, whoever believes in Me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Won't you, won't you heed what God has given us in His Word? Won't you finally accept the evidence before your eyes? Won't you finally accept the voice pressing upon your conscience and believe? Let's pray. Now our Father and our God, we ask for your help. That in your grace and your mercy, your word would not depart from us. And that you would in your kindness grant faith to the unbeliever today. Deliverance from sin, deliverance from the stubbornness of unbelief. And open their eyes that they might believe. And oh Lord, for us who believe, help us in our unbelief. Help us when our faith seems close to failing. Help us, Lord. And this we pray through Christ. Amen.